Welcome to Beyond Queer Stories. Today, we're excited to have Dr. Joel M. Fillmore. He has overcome addiction to crack cocaine and heroin and is a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, as well as a survivor of human sex trafficking. Dr. Fillmore spent 10 years on the streets of Chicago from the ages of 22 to 32, forced into prostitution through the use of addiction, coercion, and threats of violence. His story of recovery and thriving are not only remarkable, but also inspirational. As a clinician, he insists on tearing down the walls of what it means to be professional and instead seeks to meet his clients, students, and colleagues at the intersection of humanity. Dr. Fillmore utilizes his expertise and personal experiences with addiction, homelessness, and prostitution to add a layer of humanness to the process of recovery and wellness that can often be missed when working within the substance use disorder arena. He is the past president of the National Association for Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, and Transgender Issues and Counseling and has received many awards for service, leadership, and advocacy through state, regional, and national counseling organizations, including the American Counseling Association, an organization in which he is a rising leader. Dr. Fillmore's areas of expertise are in multiculturalism, LGBTQI issues, substance use disorders and addiction, trauma, sex trafficking, and criminal justice. Not only is Dr. Fillmore an assistant professor of counseling with the National Lewis University, he's also the owner and clinical director of Lighthouse Professional Counseling Centers, which have offices in Sycamore, Illinois, as well as downtown Chicago. So welcome. We are very excited to have you. Welcome. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Yay. Yes. All things queer. Let's talk. Yes. Yeah. So I got a simple little question for you. As a breaker into the other questions we'll ask, um, what identities do you feel most influence your experiences? Absolutely. My racial identity and then my gender expression slash affectional orientation. Those are probably the two and you could probably call them three um, identities that most influence my day-to-day experiences without exception. I mean, a person wouldn't necessarily know that I was a queer identified individual just looking at me, but they definitely would know that I'm a person of color. And because I'm biracial, they may not be clear on what that ethnic minority is. I often get Puerto Rican, but I'm actually uh, African-American and white. So I'm always relegated to a status just simply based on the way I look. I can't tell you how many times I've been at my job and someone basically thought I was like a janitor or some other kind of blue collar position worker. And I was a professor like that's pretty common for me. Black is whack, yeah. apparently. Black don't crack either. So <laughs> excuse me. This is this is absolutely true because because I am almost fifty, so I will attest to that. You look no like way. you're thirty six. Wow. So. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Never guessed. Thirty six. How dare you? <laughs> wow! Wow! <laughs> nice. Awesome. So, in factor in the the queer identity, then it it just I always tell folks because I'm black and I identify as black, even though I'm technically biracial. And because I'm black and I'm queer, there's literally no place in the world I can go in my day-to-day life where there isn't at least one person who hates the shit out of me simply because <laughs> of one of those identities. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there aren't a lot of uh, circles in which I often feel comfortable. 
But then, I, you know, the solution, sadly, the solution I found to that is to just be as successful as you freaking can, and then you can have a lot more control over your life. I mean, the reality is I have full autonomy over my life. I don't do anything I don't want to do anymore because I only work for myself now. Um, yeah. In the intro, you introduced me as being an assistant professor, but I actually just quit that job last week because oh, my private did. practice is doing so well that that I'm making four times my salary that the university was giving me. I got oh, wow. to go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Yes, well, honey, private practice does get pay that coin. I love it. <laughs> so unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you want to look at it, as a queer identified person of color, in order to feel a sense of safety, I have to be able to make so much freaking money that I can just work for myself. That's mm-hmm. sad. Yeah. One of the other things you mentioned um, in the bio you sent us was um, kind of navigating that personal and professional line. And I'm wondering how that relates to whether it's your decision to let go of that job or how that relates to having your own practice. Because I think that's something, I don't know, I don't want to say necessarily is unique to the queer community, but when people are, you know, living these dual roles and wanting to be authentic to themselves, but then feeling the need to conform to what people deem as professional can really be a challenging line to walk. So I'd love to hear about your experience with that. Absolutely. I mean, it's funny. That's exactly it. I mean, the reason I made the decision, it was a long time coming, but the reason I made the decision to step away from academia is because I who I am and who I refuse to change, not, you know, who I refuse to not be oftentimes is seen as a deficit in academia. They want someone that looks like me all brown and, and meek, but that acts and talks like they do. So they don't really want me. They just want to put brown skin on one of their own. And, you know, so this idea that, you know, they're claiming room at the table when they're, it's first of all why are you inviting me to a goddamn table like I should just have access to it I don't need your invitation and so that kind of speaks of power and you know for me I because I wasn't being my true self I mean you see me now but a year ago I was almost 300 pounds and I didn't recognize at the time that I was so depressed and so like sick of the life I was living because I constantly had people telling me who I was wasn't good enough. It wasn't okay. It wasn't appropriate because I say shit and fuck. And, and I don't care that I use those words because they don't have the power that for me that they seem to have for you, you know? And the irony of all of this is that while my academic life dwindled, my clinical life exploded. I have one of the largest minority-owned clinical group practices in the entire county and probably surrounding counties as well. You know, I went within a year, I went from making my salary to four times my salary. And Mm -hmm. it's just getting bigger. Every month is our best month. Like that is insane. Congratulations. So so you kind of touched on it, like the same qualities that academia said diminish me are the exact same qualities that have caused my group private practice to flourish. It's, I mean, they're, they're equally counterbalanced. It's, it's, it's insane. And so for me, I just saw that as the universe saying, bitch, get your life. You, (laughs) you know where you need to be. You know where you need to be, you know, and, and I'm not, this isn't me bragging. I'm cashing $5,000 checks every two weeks right now. 
Nice. From my private practice. And I have to put up with this bullshit. Oh, no. Mm-mm. Oh, no. No. I re- no. No. My, my boss likes me very well. Oh, by the way, I'm my own boss. So right, <laughs> only have to impress one person. That's yourself. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's so it's interesting. Yes, absolutely. My not only my identities, but just my way of being. You know, my personality, the way that I interact with people, my aggressiveness. That is all part of coping mechanisms and and survival skills I developed as a child that helped me survive and still continue to help me survive. Because without it, based on the bullshit that I've experienced from other professionals in my field critiquing my way of being, I would have folded a long time ago. Yet all that did was force me to be more me. And now I just pulled my drag persona out of the closet and I've just gone fucking crazy with that you know and i'm living my best life and the funny thing is nothing i'm doing hurts anyone yet right. people are so bothered by it you would think i had killed a baby and cooked it in a, a grill for a cookout it's insane yeah honestly i just want to say i am so in love with the fact that you swear and that you are fucking honest <laughs> with how you project yourself into the world like Currently, I am at the spot that you are at in regards to like professionalism. Like, I am definitely getting repercussions for being honest and my true self, and it fucking sucks. Like, probably one of the most discouraging things that I have to deal with because I know that it's not me that has to change. I know it's like them not wanting to accept me for being honest and true to myself, and it really fucking sucks. I have no like you said autonomy on what i can like myself like i have to like succumb i have to like like shut my mouth i have to just do what they want and Mm -hmm. it really fucking sucks (laughs) so like (laughs) hearing you tell me and tell like our whole audience that i am doing whatever the fuck i want i am being (laughs) me i am living my truth and i am successful like fuck everyone else who doesn't want to like support me i'll support me and I will support others who have a voice like me and give them a platform so they can support themselves. It's so fucking inspiring. Like, I love it. Like, you're so great. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Well, one, thank you. I mean, I appreciate, you know, I appreciate, the, obviously, the vote of confidence. Who wouldn't? Um, I, I, the thing is that you have to be careful, though. I mean, yeah. you're you're painting a target on yourself right now. Absolutely. You know, and you and I are, you know, and I, girl, don't let me blow you up and get your shit fucked up. No, it's Because, cool. <laughs> honey, I'm at a different place in the world than you are. <laughs> you are. No, I get it. I understand it completely. But it's just like, I understand, like, right now, the identities we both hold are black and queer. Not mm-hmm. even, like, touching gender not even touching age not even touching any of that but like Uh seeing you and hearing the fact that you were able to understand that that is what was holding you back like not you being you but people not wanting to accept you as you like people having to invite you because you are palatable not because you actually deserve a space that that space like yeah. hearing that in itself, it's kind of just reminiscent of me thinking to myself about what I'm going through right now in a professional like place and having to sit down and sit, say to myself, is it actually me? Am I actually the issue? Is it me being like just 100% me and not changing myself? Or is it no, not that girl. Like, they it just is, don't want to... It- 
girl, it's it is the establishment gaslighting the fuck out of you. Mm. Thank you. Oh my gosh. Thank you. That's so real. Thank you. <laughs> so real. Because you know what? Like, I look at results at the end of the day. For me, results. That's what matters. You can say what you want to say, but what kind of fruit do you bear? Mm -hmm. And when I came into my profession, I came into it straight out of prison, you know, trying to create a new life for myself. And I saw counseling and therapy as a perfect career for me because not only would I be learning about all of the things that that had, for, for the most part, completely controlled my entire life. But I was in therapy and I was seeing the benefits of it. So this wasn't just a gimmick for me. This was some life altering shit. You know, what I do, I do because I believe in it, not because of the paycheck. I just happen to be really good about getting a paycheck, Mm -hmm. you know? And so as I have continued down, kind of down this, this path of clinical work, to have, as a, it's so interesting, as a master's student, my professor said to me, authenticity, genuineness, that is key to success as a clinician. And I thought, well, that's great because I I can't be other than me. It doesn't feel natural. And then they turned right back around and said, but being you isn't good enough. It's not okay. It's mm-hmm. not acceptable. Mm-hmm. And that offended me. Mm-hmm. And so I chose to be more me. I mm-hmm. chose to be more in your face about it. Mm-hmm. And while I got a lot of professional pushback, my client base exploded and that's when I had to start adding people to my practice. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, it's really hard to stop doing a thing that has been giving you results far beyond what you ever imagined. Mm -hmm. And so when I think about like what you're talking about, this, this idea of not being, being able to be yourself in a space and in kind of touching on what I talked about, I realized that True success, and this is for anyone. Anyone can be successful. The problem is that people aren't willing to take the risks necessary to be successful, at least not at that level, because great things rarely happen because you say no. Mm-hmm. Yes yeah. is where magic happens. Um, and like with my private practice, I never imagined anyone would want to come see a queer black man for therapy, especially where I live. I live in a rural conservative farm community. It's a college town, but it's still a farm community. Mm-hmm. And it's never, ever been an issue, which is why we live here, you know, in this small town, because it's the first time in my life I've ever not felt like a minority. I just mm-hmm. feel that I'm treated like a person here. That's why I live here, you know. And I think that being in a space where you're accepted makes a huge hell of a difference in terms of your life success. I wasn't accepted the way I am in academia and I was unwilling to change. Mm-hmm. So something had to give. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I made a choice. Can you tell us a little bit about what that process was like for you from grad school to where you were able to build such a successful practice? Well, it's interesting because I never really, when I started the practice, I started the practice as something that would hopefully one day pick up and later on in life when I was ready to retire, it would be a nice little thing to keep me going through retirement. I honestly didn't expect it to blow up the way it did. And so, you know, when I was a ma- when I was finishing my master's degree at Roosevelt University in Chicago, I said, well, I'm going to start a, pr-. I always knew I wanted to do a private practice. I never wanted to do community agency work because I had done that 
pre in my previous life and it's horrible. You're treated like crap. The salary is crap. It's just terrible. Anybody that's ever done it will probably attest to that. And if they don't, well, good for them. They're martyrs. And so <laughs> I knew I wanted to do private practice and I went in with that mindset and halfway through my program, I realized I want, I wanted a doctorate degree because I wasn't learning anything about me. I wasn't learning anything about queer people. I wasn't learning anything about minorities. Learned a hell of a lot about rich white folks, <laughs> but not about what was important to me, not about the trauma I had experienced as a child, not about the racism that had impacted my life. Why aren't we talking about these things? Do they not impact one's mental health? Am I, am I confused here? And so I said, I need to get a doctorate degree so maybe I can make a difference. And I have to say, getting my doctorate degree was one of the best things I ever did. Opened doors for me that never would have opened. Dr. Fillmore commands a, a much larger audience than Joel Fillmore, the ex-con. And so I, I was, I, I lived for the the work that I was doing in academia, in counselor ed, um, being involved in the organizations, like being hailed as a rising siren, just being drunk with that excitement. But I knew that clinical work was something I wanted to do. I'd always wanted to do. So I started the practice, not really thinking it was going to be something I dove into so strongly because I really want, was focused on teaching and, you know, publishing and, and like I'm on a research grant right now, $1.4 million research grant with this research uh, team out of Yale University, which is really awesome. I love, um, things of academia. So I started the practice and honestly, I, I, the practice could would never have stayed afloat if I hadn't been working full time as a professor because that salary helped me keep the doors open for the first year and a half. Private practice is not something you go into lightly. You absolutely have to know that you are you're this is a ride or die situation. Like mm -hmm. I'm gonna ride the wheels off this bitch or it's gonna be successful. One of the two things <laughs> is gonna happen. Mm -hmm. You have to have that mindset because you're going to spend money out of your own private pocket to support the business at some point, because I did it for a, a, a year. And suddenly, after about a year and a half, like we started getting a really strong reputation. At this time, I think I had like two or three people working for me part-time, and I mean very part-time, four or five hours a week. And I was doing like 30, 35 hours a week, plus teaching full-time. And our reputation started growing and, and, you know, my area of expertise is, tends, is around multiculturalism and LGBTQI issues. And so, a lot of the queer and the trans people in the community started hearing about me. And so then it started to grow and I needed more help. And I just kept adding people and adding people. And the more people I added, the bigger our name became, the more people were calling and it just became this domino effect. And like, I need to hire three more people right now and I don't know where to get them from. Mm -hmm. So um, it's, it's been this really crazy whirlwind experience for me. And honestly, the, you know, being able to step back from academia and focus on the clinical work, man, has probably been one of the, the single most empowering things of my experiences of my life. Because again, being in a position where you are the author, the inventor, the creator of this product, and to see it be so highly valued in your own community, and so much so that you now work for yourself completely. Like you can't imagine the amount of terror and the amount of excitement that you experience at the exact same time all the time. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. 
for the record, I you need to cut me off because I will talk. No, I'm you're good. Okay. You're good. <laughs> we are at about, I'm like keeping track of our time markers. It is about the time to start off with your story too. So Absolutely. we'd love to hear the story you have today. Yeah, so this... This is a story all about how my life got flipped, <laughs> turned upside down. Tell us. Um, yeah, so I was I was born in 1970 in Chicago. Uh, my mother, uh, Patricia, was Caucasian, and my father, Lawrence, was African-American. And they weren't married. You know, my dad was very much a – Papa was a Rolling Stone kind of guy. So he had lots of women, and my mom was just one of them. Um, when I when she when I was three years old, my mom apparently was married at that time, and she my stepfather murdered her, and he murdered her because apparently, and this is all stuff I've heard in the last recent years, and I've gotten the police report from her murder. Um, she had taken his car after dropping him off at work one day, and and drove to Michigan to our grandmother's house to visit it with her, and then. I don't know how long she was gone, but then she came back to Chicago and she just never went back to him. And he found her one day at a restaurant on the South side of Chicago. And she was talking to someone and he walked in and told the guy to, to leave. The guy got up and left and he sat down and this is an account from the people in the restaurant. And he said, Pat, where's my car? And she said, I don't know. And he reached up and he cut her throat and he laid her head on mm. the table and he just sat there until the police came. So like that was my first experience with trauma at the age of three. Now, I, I don't remember my mom, at least I don't have any active memories of her, but I have a sense of my mother. And, and the reason I say it like that is because when we went to Michigan to live with her family, we it, we were supposed to go with our grandmother, but she had just had back surgery, so we couldn't go with her. So we went with my mother's sister and they look very much alike. They're you know white with freckles and fire red hair like Lucille Ball. And so I thought my aunt was my mom. And I remember thinking as a child, why does my mom not like me anymore? So while I didn't know, I don't remember her, I, I at least had enough sense of who she was to me to say she doesn't like me anymore because I thought she was my aunt was her. Um, and that in that household is where the sexual abuse began, um, sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse. It was it was hell living in that house. My aunt used to make me stand in the corner from the time I woke up in the morning until the time I went to bed at night, which was always well past the time everyone else in the house went to bed. It was just torture living in her house because they were racist. They hated myself and my brother because we were biracial. And keep in mind, like the sexual abuse was initially started with my older cousins. And then like most children of sexual abuse, you almost become a beacon for every monster out there. And so then it began happening outside the home. Um, but for me, like it was just normal because it's one of my earliest memories is sex play. And so when I was six, my grandmother came to get my brother and I to live with her. So we went to live with her. Of course, this is, we're all one big family. So the sexual abuse and all that still continued. It just wasn't as consistent simply because we didn't live with the people who were perpetrating it. Um, but then by that time, I started actively seeking out sex play. So now you have this six, seven, eight-year-old kid going around looking to engage in sex with people. And 
trust me, if a child is looking to engage with sex, they will find sex with plenty of adults because I did. And keep in mind, again, I'm just simply acting off the pleasure principle of sex, not this isn't necessarily like me going, mm, sex sounds good today. It's just the pleasure effect. And that's one of the things we don't often talk about um, when it comes to sexual abuse is there's pleasure involved. It's not always violent and horrible um, for the child, especially a child who is emotionally and psychologically and physically abused. They crave any positive attention. And so I, like, I never told anyone because why would I ever tell that someone that this person who is always nasty to me is actually nice to me sometimes. Like, why would I tell on the sometimes you're nice to me? It doesn't make sense. So fast forward to puberty and suddenly I'm attracted to boys. And it was one of the worst days of my life when I realized that I actually liked boys as opposed to just engaging in sex. Because like, like most people, I grew up believing I would get married and have babies and live happily ever after because that's how you socialize children. And despite the fact that I'd been engaging in sex with males and men, like it was not an attraction. It was just an act. And then I remember saying, you know what, God, it's bad enough you made me black. Now you made me black and gay. Like that was an actual conversation I had with God. And I've always been a very, very effeminate boy, always had a very, very high-pitched voice. I used to get mistaken for a little girl all the time. And when I realized I liked boys, that was the only way I could make sense of the fact that I liked boys. As I said, God must have made a mistake and I was supposed to be a girl. Now, I didn't know anything about transsexuals or transgender or drag queens or any of that stuff. This was 1983, and I'm living in Pin County, Michigan on a farm. I don't know anything about that stuff. This is, but it's the only thing my 13-year-old brain can come up with as a solution. So I started dressing up as a girl in secret at the age of 13 as a way of dealing with my attraction to boys. And so, I mean, we lived on 14 acres of wooded land. So imagine the hilarity of seeing a 13-year-old drag queen running through the woods playing, <laughs> climbing trees. That was me in Michigan. And like every once in a while, like on Halloween, I would dress up. I always dress up like a girl on Halloween, some version, a witch or whatever. And my grandmother used to get so angry at me because she's like, somebody's going to, they're going to hurt you. You look like a faggot. Take that stuff off. What she never actually said to me, which she, which is, I found out later, is I looked so much like a girl. She was worried someone would do something. They would rape with me. And you know, those experiences with, especially my grandmother, who was a very, angry, angry, verbally abusive woman. She wasn't physically abusive, but she was just, just verbally, just nasty. And I didn't realize till years later when I was older, you know, a lot of who she was, was based on her own trauma. You know, she was an old, bitter woman who was, who got saddled with a six-year-old and a nine-year-old, you know? So, and she did the best she could. And, and I will always love her. Always, always love her and honor her memory. But she was a straight bitch and she knows she was. So look, they say don't talk ill of the dead, but that's being kind. My grandmother was a beast. So, but I loved her because despite everything, she was there. You know, when no one else was, she was there. And so as I got older and I became more 
I wouldn't I say comfortable, but that's not the right word. I just became more aggressive because the only way I could that I could I could deal with the abuse I was experiencing from the community, the verbal abuse, faggot, nigger, Michael Jackson, coon, grillo head, sissy. Like the only way I could deal with that was to just become really aggressive. And instead of because I was terrified every day, I was terrified someone would hurt me. I had, I remember being a teenager. I couldn't have been more than 14 years old and a grown man grabbed me, didn't even know me, just grabbed me in my hometown and got right in my face spitting. And he has, he was red with rage. He said, I will fucking kill you, nigger. I was 14. That was my life growing up in that town. And so I was always terrified. So my way of dealing with the terror was to become very aggressive and loud. And if someone said something to me, I yelled as loud as I could, fuck you. I don't care. Like I was the most rage-aholic kid ever, but it kept people away from me. People didn't mess with me because of that. And the reality is now at my, at, as an adult, I'm still very much that way. I have a very strong personality. I'm very aggressive. And I, I absolutely recognize that. There isn't shit you can tell me about me that I don't already know. This is a well-crafted uh, individual here. Trust and believe when I tell you this. And so, you know, with the kind of personality I have, people often react of one of two different ways. They either really love me or they just can't stand me. And that's, that's the truth. But when I think about like growing up, I needed to be that person. I needed to be someone who was so provocative that people who weren't secure in themselves couldn't be comfortable with me. If that makes sense. Because what that, because people who then could be okay with the me that I was showing them were people that I could trust because they weren't so sensitive because I needed, I needed people in my life who were strong because if I were, because if you weren't strong, then I couldn't trust you with my vulnerability because if you, when you trust weak people, that's when you get hurt. And that's what I learned as a child. And so by the time I got to be 17 years old, I was pretty much as out as I could be. Like I had just hadn't said the words and like my hometown was 1300 peoples, you know, 1,300. And so for me, by the time I was 17, my grandmother had already been taken out of the home by my aunt because she was deathly ill. And so my aunt had her with her, was taking care of her. And now here I am 17 years old living in a house by myself. And I remember I called my aunt when I came home from uh, work and my grandmother was gone and all her stuff was gone. I said, where's grandma? Did she die? And nobody told me. And she's like, oh, no, I came and got her. She's living with me now. I just got tired of driving back and forth. Mind you, my aunt lived like a half hour away. And I was 17, a senior in high school. And I said, well, what about me? And she's like, well, you have a job. I had a part-time job at Sears. She's like, <laughs> <laughs> she's like, you have a job. You can take care of yourself. Like that, I was so devastated by that. Like. Like my family literally abandoned me. And so I left home and started renting a room for this from this elderly lady in Bay City, Michigan, which is where my aunt was living with my grandmother and my cousins and stuff. And I tried to finish high school, but, you know, with everything I was going through and then switching my senior year, I just couldn't, I, you know, I wasn't doing well. So I stopped, I just stopped going and I was getting in so much trouble. I've been arrested for embezzlement from Sears, my job. And, you know, I was, 
I, I was drinking and doing drugs excessively. And mind you, I started drinking when I was 10 years old. That was how I coped with the sexual and physical abuse is I just drank as a kid. And so it was really getting out of hand and I was getting a lot of trouble. So I called my brother, Larry, he was 21 at the time and he had just gotten married and he was just getting ready to graduate from college. And I was like, can I come and live with you? I'm getting into too much trouble. And, you know, one of the things I didn't mention is that my brother, the way he dealt with the abuse at home is he became very religious and I just turned alcohol and drugs. Now, so now I'm asking my 21-year-old brother, who's very religious, if I can live with him, and I'm gay. But he doesn't know this because I haven't come out. So he's, he's like, let me pray about it. So he hung up and he called me back an hour. I don't remember how long, maybe an hour or half hour or so later. said, okay, I prayed about it. And I talked with my wife and you can come live with us, but you got to follow my rules. And of course I said, yes, absolutely not intending to do that because uh, you're my brother, not my dad. So I moved to Grand Rapids with my brother and um, I got registered in school. And then like a week later, I discovered the world of gay people like gay bars. I didn't even know they were a thing. I was like, they got whole mm -hmm. bars full of gay people. Holy cow. So here I am 18 years old going to the gay bar for the first time. And I'm terrified because I don't know what goes on in gay bars. I mean, I know it goes on in bars, but they don't call them straight bars. So I wasn't really sure if it was something weird. And I remember I walked in and the place was super dark and they had no windows, which I didn't understand. <laughs> like, why are there no windows in this place? And that scared me more. And I was like walking through this dark bar and I find the bar and I sit down on a stool and the bartender says, what do you have? And I'm like, what? He's like, what do you want to drink? I'm like, a beer? He's like, okay, what kind? I was like, I don't, I think I said Bud Light or Budweiser or whatever. But he gave it to me. I was only 18. I was like, mm -hmm. holy cow, you can drink when you're 18 at a gay bar? That's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> so I had the beer and then I left because I was scared. But I, it was, I was excited too. Like I was like, this is incredible. And so then every weekend I started going back. And I remember by the second or third time I went, I met my first boyfriend. And from the moment we met, we, I never went back home, which is weird, but I didn't. We slept in his car for like a week because he couldn't take me back to his house either. And I remember after about a week, I said, I got to go home. I said, my brother's got to be worried about me. I haven't, he hasn't heard from me in a week. And he took me home and he was sat in the parking lot and I went in and my sister-in-law was awake and she said, Joel, what's going on with you? Where have you been? We've been calling the morgue and the hospitals. We thought you were dead. And I just started crying and I said, I'm gay. And she looked at me and she said, let me go get your brother. So she got up and she went to her bedroom. And then a couple minutes later, my brother came out and you could tell he was had been crying. And he sat down at the dining room table and he said, Joel, you're my brother and I love you. And you can live here or you can be gay, but you can't do both. So I left. And I don't know how, but like a couple of weeks later, my boyfriend's mom bought us a building, a two unit building so we could live in. So like that had never happened in my life. So, <laughs> um, so now here I am 18 years old living in a two unit building that I own with my boyfriend. And the day we move in is the first time he beats me. So now here I am living on my own, 
in an abusive relationship. Now, considering my past, this isn't really all that unusual for me. So I stay because I have a house and his mom bought me a new car. And now I have things I've never had and never imagined I'd have. And all I have to do is fight with my boyfriend. Well, hell, I've fought with people every day of my life. So this is really no different. And we were together for about two years before I finally got to a place and I said, this isn't love. This is not what love looks like. And I left him. But that two years is when I discovered drag and I created this alternate personality for myself to kind of to grow and explore the world and be a different person than the person that I had grown up to hate and loathe, which was Joel. And I was good. And like people told me I was beautiful. and I'd never heard those words before, and it was addictive, and I never wanted anything more in my life at that time than to be a woman, because everyone hated Joel, but wow, everyone loved this person that I presented them, which was just the most astonishing experience in the world. So now I'm 20 years old, I left my abusive boyfriend, and ran away from Grand Rapids, and I'm back with my family temporarily. And then I start couch surfing for the next year. And on my 21st birthday, I got super drunk with my friends. And the next day, I called my dad in Chicago, and I said, Dad, I'm going nowhere with my life. Can I come to Chicago and go to college? And he said, sure, baby, no problem. And so the next day, there was a bus ticket. Boom, I was in Chicago. Kind of skip over a lot of detailing stuff, because I can be long-winded. I ended up getting a girlfriend while I was in college. Um, I was going to Olive Harvey Community College on the south side of Chicago and started dating a girl that was that liked me because I thought my whole problem is I'm gay. If I wasn't gay, my life would be awesome because I was a cute ass boy. Like you can't tell you can't tell me nothing. I know I was fine. Even but it took me a lot to get to that place because my family taught me that black people are ugly. And of course I was black. So I took on that that internalized identity as being ugly. And so we were dating and I ended up actually liking her and we moved in together and wow, I actually can have sex with women. Who knew? And so I'm in this relationship with this girl and a couple months before our wedding, my brother set called me and he says, did you tell her that you've been with guys before? And I said, well, no, because I'm with her. I know how to be faithful. He's like, well, I can't be in your wedding unless you tell her because she doesn't know who she's marrying. And I agreed with him and I started crying and I hung up and she's like, what's going on? What's wrong? What somebody died? And I'm like, no. And I said, blah. And I told her and she said, let me go talk to my mom because we lived in her parents' basement. She came down about 20 minutes later and says, mom says you have to go back to your dad's house. So now I'm in a car driving back to my father's house after living with my girlfriend or fiance for a year with a garbage bag full of my stuff. And I'm devastated. And I'm like, did I do the right thing? Like, why did I say anything? Now, mind you, Fast forward 30 years, I did the right thing. I know the right thing was to tell her. But this next part of the story still makes me question that. A week after I was home at my dad's house, he said to me, what are you going to do about the baby? And I said, what baby? What are you talking about? And he said, well, she's pregnant. She called me and told me she's pregnant. And I said, well, why would she tell you and not tell me? That doesn't make any sense. So I called her and she was pregnant. 
And I'm trying everything I can to get back together with her, at the very least, to be involved in her life so I can be involved in my child's life. And then a week of back and forth, a week of back and forth, and she called me crying and said I had a miscarriage. And I had a break from reality, like a clinical break. And that night, I left my dad's house wearing a T-shirt, a pair of tennis shoes, and shorts with $1.50 in my pocket. And I got on the bus and took the train to the north side of Chicago to Boys Town. And when I got off, I ran into a friend of mine who was a drag queen named Coco. And I told her that my baby had died. And she said, you know what? Come stay with me as long as you need. And when you get yourself together, we can figure out where to go from there. And I never went back to my dad's house. And that was 1991. And it's 2019. And I still haven't gone back. So now I'm living with my friend Coco and in a transient hotel on Belmont. The hotel's not there anymore, but um, every night we're going out. And I, I, I stopped being Joel at that point. I started living full-time as my female alter ego. So now I'm living as a woman 24 hours. I'm taking hormones, HRT, to grow breasts and, and transition. And I'm partying all day, every day, and all night with my friend Coco, getting high, doing drugs, and drinking. Now, my, mind you, I don't have any money, and I'm not sure how she's paying for it, but she's paying for all of it. So we're, 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 this is the 90s, and I don't know how old you all are, but the 90s were the shit. Oh, my God. <laughs> to, be alive in, to be alive in the 90s in Chicago, you have not lived. So we're going to all these amazing clubs, drag queen clubs. And, and what I didn't know, mind you, because remember, I'm 20, 21 years old, 21, 22. But I grew up in a town of 1,300 people. I'm naive as fuck. Okay. Like really naive. So we're in the bar hanging at where we normally are. This bar doesn't exist anymore, but it used to be on like where Belmont, Clark, and Sheridan all intersects next to the Golden Nugget there. For all you Chicago folks, <laughs> little reference, little reference. And I'm in there and there's this really attractive guy staring at me and he's, he's sitting at a table with like three other, three girls, like bio girls. And he's looking at me. I'm like, Oh, he is fine. And he's looking. And I said to my friend, girl, look at this man staring at me. And she said, girl, don't mess with that man. He's a pimp. And I said, girl, what is you talking about? It's 1991. Ain't no such thing as pimps. Of course there were, but that's how naive I was. And he came over and started talking to me and he was just, every dream just gorgeous just funny and he had money and he did the one thing that i needed which was show me attention positive attention and if you know anything about trauma survivors we're attention whores we need we crave attention we prefer positive attention but we'll take negative and so he's he's giving me He's just giving me life with his compliments. And I started hanging out with him and his girlfriends. And I knew they were his girlfriends because that's how he introduced them. And I was like, I don't care. I was, I was, I was like, they're bio women. And I'm, and I'm here. I am a tranny because that's what we called ourselves. Uh, not to be offensive to anyone. And so, and I'm like, I'm living because he has all these women and I'm the only transsexual. Oh, honey, I'm, I'm every, every woman's fantasy. So I was living and we're getting high and partying all the time. And then, about a week later, we're in a hotel, hanging out, drinking and partying. And he said, you ever try this? And I said, what is it? And he showed me this rock. He said, here, let me show you how to do it. He put it on a pipe and he lit it and he smoked it and he passed it to me. And I hit that pipe and I blew the smoke out. And I was like, oh, oh, 
that's so good. Can we get some more? It was crack. I didn't know. And he didn't tell me. Within a week, he had me on the streets prostituting in order to get more drugs. And I mean, I was fortunate, believe it or not, because I he all he had to do was use the coercion of the drugs to get me out there. The, he was beating the girls. Like, it wasn't uncommon for him to hit them. You know, and I never said anything because he wasn't hitting me. So I was okay with it. And because when you live that life, it's all about survival, you know, survival of one. And I was under his thumb for about four years. And, you know, and I was constantly being arrested. I've been arrested over 60 times, you know, in the 10 years that I was prostituting and trafficking. So I was not unfamiliar with the criminal justice system. But the thing with prostitution is, the crime, I mean, for the most part, if you don't, as long as you go to court, you get arrested, you sit there for a couple hours, they let you go on recognizance, you show up to court, they either dismiss it or they give you a finding, they send you on your way. So the repercussions aren't that significant until they build up over time. And that's when you start getting jail time. So, you know, for me now, fast forward, I've left him. I'm on my own still prostituting because now crack cocaine and heroin are my pimps because he got me hooked on heroin too, because I was doing so much crack that I was paranoid and couldn't go out in the street to turn tricks. So he'd give me the heroin to bring me down off the crack to go out in the street and turn tricks. Then I'd, he'd give me crack to give me energy. So I, I could be up to go out in the street and, and to turn tricks. So, I mean, it wasn't uncommon for me to stay up for a week straight without sleeping and barely eating during that time. And so now I'm just doing it for, for the sake of my own habit. And I did it for another six years and I was homeless the whole time. And, you know, I was sleeping underneath people's back porches. I would pull out the grating around their back porch and slip in there and then line up dark plastic or paper along the inside. So you couldn't see me in there. Or I would sleep in people's in alleyways behind dumpsters or on rooftops of businesses in, the, in Boys Town. I'm sure if you went through some of those alleys, you could find pallets of old moldy clothing where I used to sleep. 20 years ago, you know, so like how I survived that is quite frankly, the only explanation I have is God, that there is in fact a God, because there's no reasonable explanation for my survival, because I should have died many, many times over. And I have had my life put at risk many times over during that time. And, and everyone I know, without exception, is dead from that time. They either were murdered, they died of HIV, or uh, overdosed. And so I don't take lightly the fact that I'm still alive when so many other people that I knew are now dead. So fast forward now, it's December of 2002, and I am just tired of being touched by strangers. And I'm still just madly addicted, so I have to get money to get drugs. And so I decide I'm going to be a thief instead of a prostitute. And I steal a woman's purse. I snatch it out of her hands, and I run down the alley, and I jump over a fence, and I jump over another fence, and I cross the street, and I'm running down the block. And I don't notice there's a guy on a bicycle following me on a cell phone, letting the police know where I am. So I got caught immediately. And I've always been the kind of criminal that when I get caught, I don't lie and say I didn't do it because I did it. And, you know, as many times as I've been arrested, there are way more times that I was not arrested for shit I should have been. So I've always been a very honest criminal in that sense. And so when I went to court, I said to the judge, you know, Your Honor, I did it. It's all good. You know, give me my little time in jail and I, we'll be good. He said, oh, no, you're not going to jail. You're going to prison for three years. And I was just like, what? I'd never been to prison. So 
now I'm shipped off to prison. And fortunately, because my crime was a nonviolent one, I only had to serve half that time. So prison really was a wake up call for me in the sense that I had all this, I had 18 months of time to just genuflect and reflect and do introspection. And because I've always been a contemplative type of person, you know, I always said I was like, um, gosh, who is that, that uh, contemplative monk? I can't think of his name, but I always said I was like the the guru prostitute because I was always, always very. The Dalai like, Lama, in, Gandhi. They, yes, ma'am. Dalai Lama of hoes. That's me. Because <laughs> I've always been a very introspective individual. Like who I am isn't, I didn't become this person because I got a doctor degree. I, this is who I was. And I turned tricks and got high. You know, um, I just have a little bit more knowledge about counseling and psychology than I did before. So when I was in prison, I used my talents and I, you know, talkativeness and I got to know all of the men on my deck and they all had the same stories. They were all tragic. And when they started going to prison, they didn't stop. And I saw that was my future. I was going to be in prison in and out for the rest of my life from now on, unless something changed, unless something was different. And I realized I had to take responsibility for everything I had ever done because every choice I ever made got me to prison. And so if I wanted to end up someplace else, I was going to have to make different choices. And so I did. I, st- I applied to college while I was in prison and I got accepted. I did my financial aid while I was in prison and I got accepted. And I got hooked up with a, a halfway house. And in June of 2004, I got out of the halfway house or got out of prison, went to the halfway house, started college a couple months later, met my future husband a few months after that. A few months after I met him, we moved in together. Everyone said we were crazy because I was a felon and he didn't know me and we didn't know each other. But hell, I said, I got somebody paying half the rent. (laughs) Win-win. So then fast forward and I graduated. Holy crap. And so I applied to a master's program and I got in and I killed it in that master's program. Holy crap. Maybe I'm not a dumb nigger. Maybe, Maybe my family lied to me. And holy shit, I just got into a doctoral program and what? I'm killing it in this motherfucker. Oh, they don't like me saying motherfucker. Well, I'm killing it anyways in this motherfucker. (laughs) And and suddenly these doors open and I'm jumping through and I'm saying yes. And I'm getting, making a name for myself and I'm a rising star and I keep saying motherfucker and they keep telling me to stop. And here we are in this moment in time. And I still say motherfucker. The difference is I say motherfucker because it's what I mean to say. I don't accidentally say words. I think the challenge for me through this entire journey, and it continues to be, and I, if I was being fully honest and completely vulnerable, I would say I'm struggling with this because a part of me wants to just be that Uncle Tom whitewashed person so that the masses, meaning those in my profession who hold the most power will say I'm good enough. But the militant motherfucker in me says, fuck that shit. And you know what? I know it's the right call. Even when everyone else in the world tells you you're wrong, if you know you're right, then you got to take responsibility. You got to take ownership and you got to be willing to own the consequences. And I do every day. And for every negative consequences, I have five positive ones. So I'm still on top, motherfucker. Yay. <laughs> right? I feel like, sort of like 
An audience applause. That was an amazing story. Thank you for sharing. Well, it's not done yet, girl. Oh, okay. Well, spill more tea. Tell me. No, no. What girl? I ain't dead. That's what I mean. Right. So much more. Done. You just started a new chapter. You just quit academia. You're growing your practice. It's a whole nother journey ahead of you. You know. Um. You know. We just had our income taxes, business taxes done because it's that time of the year, and and my accountant says, you know, in the last, you've increased. 220 per, 227% since last year. And every month is our best month yet. And I just did payroll today and it's our best month by almost $10,000. So wow. we just keep growing. And I predict that when my five-year lease that I'm in right now ends, we will be positioned to build our own building. And we won't, we'll no longer be Lighthouse Professional Counseling Center but rather will be Lighthouse Behavioral Health and Wellness Center. And we will have not just counseling, but yoga, Reiki, Pilates, acupuncture, massage therapy, all of that. We're going to be a holistic wellness center and not just a clinical private practice. I love that. Yeah. That's that's like my vision, because I also want to start a sober living community out here, as well as a home for queer and trans youth and adolescents. So. I got big plans and I advocate everyone, no, whatever you do, whatever, whatever your degree is, whatever ideas you have for your future, make them ridiculous, mm-hmm. make them ridiculous and then run towards them. Because I guarantee you, even if you don't get all the way there, where you land will be miles ahead of everyone else. I love it. So I have a question that I thought of as you were kind of talking about the part of your story where you came into your drag persona. <clears throat> Through that journey, and you also mentioned in the beginning that you have started entertaining and doing drag again recently. How are those personas the same or different from then to now in terms of well, your, your drag identity? Oh, yeah, that's that's a great question, actually. Because so when I first started doing drag, you know, I created this really sweet bubblegum character. Her name was Lindsay Morgan. I mean, the name alone just is sugary <laughs> sweet. And she, like, she was everything I wasn't in the sense that like she, everything I didn't believe I was. So she was beautiful and she was really sweet and kind. Cause I wasn't, I mean, I, I was an angry child, an angry young adult, and I'm an angry ass old man right now. So I, I purposely created her to be all the things I wish I could be, but I was too afraid to be because I don't do vulnerable very well. Because I don't trust people. I don't think people are basically good, which is why I'm not a Rogerian. So I had the character Lindsay. And then I didn't want to taint that image of her. So when I started prostituting, I used the name Danielle. So Danielle, or Danny, was my street persona. And she was a badass bitch. Like, she kept me alive. Like, she pulled out a gun and, and robbed a guy. Like she was a bad bitch. She, Joel would never, ever do something like that. And certainly not Lindsay. Like these really were very fully actualized characters in my, that, that I lived. Like I couldn't walk through alleys and romp up and down Cabrini Green. Y'all ever been to Cabrini Green? Cause I have a lot. So Joel would have never carried his black ass up in Cabrini Green. But Miss Danny, she didn't care. She was about to get her drugs and, those boys didn't like the fact that she was a drag queen. So what? They liked her money. Mm-hmm. You know, that was my attitude. 
And it's, again, it's that character saved my life, just like Lindsay saved my life when I was little. Now, as a woman of a certain age, Mona is probably the best of all of those characters and Joel. She's she's beautiful. She's the kind of beautiful where you look at her and you're like, that old lady's hot. You know, she was killing it when she was in her 20s. Because <laughs> that old lady slays now. She must have been a serial killer, mm-hmm. you know. So, so she's very sexual, very sensual. She also says very inappropriate shit. So it's so, and that's important. And she also says the nicest, she's the nicest, kindest whore you will ever meet. That's how I think of her. She's an old whore with new tricks. And like, if you go to a show that I do, you're going to see me go around to every table, introducing myself to every single person, or I should say Mona. Because that's who Mona Joel wouldn't give two shits to do something like that. I got shit to do. But Mona, it's important for her to physically connect with everyone. And I don't just say, hi, I'm Mona. I touch every single person. Because that's important. Because physical contact is important to Mona. And it's also important to Joel. Anyone that knows me, that's a friend of mine, will tell you, I am very physical. And if you're a person that's not comfortable with that, you probably won't be a good friend of mine. Because for me, physical contact is quintessential to intimacy. And I'm not talking sexual. I'm talking just pure emotional intimacy and connectedness for me. Um, So it's challenging for me to when I'm with people who, who don't like physical contact. So Mona is a combination of all of the best, in my opinion, uh, characteristics of all of those individuals kind of molded into one but she's still in many ways very different than me like i as joel as dr fillmore will say you know fuck and shit and things like that but mona says very graphic shit that i just wouldn't say because i would feel it's inappropriate which doesn't make a whole lot of sense (laughs) maybe but it is what it is (laughs) no i love it i get it it's like totally unrelated like completely switch unrelated. it up on us. I don't know. I don't want. I don't know if I, this is a good idea. But I have a question. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if you follow um, social media at all or follow like anything on that matter. But a thing came out about this artist and how she used to like run tricks and she used to be a stripper. Uh-huh. And, yes, I um, Okay. So um, and it came out that you know sh- there was an interview that she did about how like she used to like rob guys to like get what she needed to get and like do this mm-hmm. for herself you're trying to not name somebody. I'm trying, everybody knows like, who I'm you're talking about now that you gave those details <laughs> that like, one like, person like, that people are kind of talking about right now okay okay so we all know who we're talking about okay, okay. so i personally haven't had uh haven't had an open opinion about it because i've been listening to everyone else's like talk about it and there's a story that came out about how like she raped somebody and then that person came out and they lied about it and what made the whole thing even worse but like made it brought it back to like the center of the topic which is like she used to rob people to get what she needed to do to like further her success and with you being in a similar position like actually like a worse off position than she was how do you what do you say to that like because when i thought when i saw it I'm, i was just kind of like well you have to take in account that people who are in this position aren't doing it because they like it. They're doing it because they have to survive. Like they have to make sure that they're in a position to better themselves the next day or get what they need to get to like 
it whether it be drugs or whether it be like getting record time at a record label <laughs> like that those things like needed to get done like i see you and don't, don't be even like i'm trying wanted really to get it right now yeah. i'm not laughing at you though that's the funny thing it's like i'm agreeing at wholehearted everything you just yeah. said i'm just like the the thing is we're talking about this as if the act itself is this horrible thing she drugged and robbed guys but we're completely ignoring the fact what we're really not saying this is what's not being said a prostitute someone who probably wasn't doing it because they had wanted to because mm-hmm. they had to mm-hmm. and somebody who was purchasing another mm-hmm. human being the per- we're ignoring the fact that here's someone purchasing another mm-hmm. human being mm-hmm. by the hour mm-hmm. and that person who was in fact committing a crime got robbed mm-hmm. how fucking ludicrous is this shit why are we mm-hmm. talking about this mm-hmm. That motherfucker got what he got. Mm-hmm. Welcome to, you play the game, you get played by the game. Mm-hmm. So I don't really understand. Like, it's kind of like this whole, like the whole concept of prostitution in and of itself has been turned on its head because one of the things that you find in most states, you, if, if a prostitute and a trick get pulled over, nine times out of 10, the trick is going to get sent home and the, mm-hmm. the, the prostitute's going to jail. Yeah. Why? They're yeah. both committing crimes. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to hear shit about what Miss Thing done. You know what? When I was out there, nobody was worried about who was trying to kill me. Mm-hmm. Look, if I if I didn't make it, I was going to make it. Yeah. And, and she did what she needed to do. And I say amen to her. And, 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 and girl, get yours. Mm-hmm. Get your, I, I, I would love to have somebody come up on your show and try to rationalize how we can have a discussion about what this woman done did, completely ignoring the fact that this whole transaction was illegal in the first place. Mm-hmm. Get the fuck out of here. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you so much. Because I've been sitting out. I'm just like, I really, I don't want to, I don't want to be the person that says anything, but I also do want to be the person that says something. But the fact that you have that background and you have come from something similar like worse off than that i'm just like i feel like this would make sense coming from a person who actually understands that having to be a reality for them you know like i don't think people who like actually saw and heard her actually understood the concept of that mm-hmm. like what was actually going on like none of that should have happened in the first place they're, like, none of that they're looking at they're looking at millionaire her mm-hmm. talking about some shit she did when she was in the sewer. Mm-hmm. Get out of here. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. No. But so we can we can ignore some of the things that 45 did because he did them before he was 45. Mm-hmm. That shit's okay. But some shit she did back right. in the Get out of exactly. here. Right. Get out of here. Exactly. Get out of here. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we're on the same page. <laughs> <laughs> Mm-mm. Because you know what we're not talking about? We're not talking about how many times she was raped. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about how many times she was beat. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about how many times her life was almost taken from her. Mm-hmm. Because that's oh well, no, that's too real. Now let's just talk. Let's talk about the fact that she said this one thing. Wasn't nobody talking about the fact that she was a prostitute even? Mm-hmm. Oh, being a prostitute was fine because you took something from a trick. Mm-hmm. Now that's a, get out of here. Where the fuck are your priorities? My goodness. Lord Jesus. Granted, she did do like other things. She admitted to doing other things that were very, very problematic. Mm-hmm. But this is something that I wanted to touch on because I felt like this is the thing that people like heard and immediately wanted to denounce her for. Mm-hmm. Not understanding that there are people in higher off positions probably buying her 
at mm-hmm. it, like doing that and that not saying anything about that in the first place. Well, and the thing is, too, it's not like nobody knew she had a past. This woman is very, mm-hmm. very transparent. Mm-hmm. OK, just mm-hmm. like me. It's not like you don't know who I am. You could just Google my ass and get some information. Mm-hmm. So you can't survive the life I live and not do some really fucked up shit. Mm-hmm. So let's just leave it at that. Mm-hmm. So what now somebody wants to come in and, and try to crucify me because of some shit I did when I was a homeless drug addicted, cross-dressing prostitute who was a victim of sex trafficking. Well, come on with it then. You're not going to like that conversation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Kinda, that makes me think of a question to kind of build off of that. How do you feel like those experiences have served you in our clinical work? Cause I imagine that's definitely a piece of your success as well. Clinically. Oh, absolutely. You know, a hundred percent, you know, when you are in, um, a school to learn the art and craft of counseling and therapy. One of the things that that's shared in a lot of the programs is this notion of, you know, being that transparency or disclosure should be done minimally or not at all. Your clients should not get information about you. And I wholeheartedly disagree with that. Um, first of all, it's not unethical or illegal to to give your clients information about yourself. So Let's just be clear about that, all you uh, uh, ethic Nazis out there. So knowing that to be true, who am I to sit there in a space with someone who doesn't know me and ask them to metaphorically get naked in front of me, but I'm not going to tell you nothing about me? No, I will tell you this, and and I will take this to the bank because I do it every two weeks, baby. (laughs) The reason that my private practice is successful is because I don't hire anyone who isn't a thoroughly transparent, authentic human being. I don't hire anyone that I don't perceive isn't willing to allow their clients into their lives on some level. You don't have to be as transparent as I am. That's your decision. But you can't be a closed book and work for Lighthouse Professional Counseling Center. Our clients have come to expect that the experience they have with us is going to be different. And I would say, all day long, like I said, take it to the bank. The reason that Lighthouse is, in fact, as successful as it is, is because we take a very no-nonsense approach to counseling and therapy, not meaning we don't have skills, because trust me, we all have very good skills. Um, we have a stellar reputation, but what we don't do is we don't keep our clients at arm's length. I cry with my clients. I hug my clients. And I live in a small town, so I have dual relationships even with some of my clients. So. You go ahead and and keep doing what you're doing. And and, and if you want to believe that uh, keeping your clients at a distance from you makes you a great therapist, then well, then hallelujah, honey, you go right on ahead. But my professional experience and my personal experience says exactly the opposite. Yeah, I think something that people don't often understand about that and something I've noticed I've run up against is that's especially important in minority communities. I feel like myself as a clinician, if I'm seeing a client who has a queer identity and they're talking about that identity vulnerably in front of me, and I don't ever at any point disclose my connectedness to that identity, it feels deceitful. Well, you know, it's interesting too. It's like, the whole piece about it's especially important in with minority groups. Absolutely. But my, my practice is predominantly Caucasian, you know, because I live in America. Like right. I don't have an overabundance of minorities that come to my practice. I think we have a larger percentage than most practices, but that's because if you look at my website, you're going to see people of every color 
on my website. Why? Because I don't have all white therapists. I have black therapists. I have Latino therapists. I have white therapists. I have, you know, so we are a, a we are fully representative of our community here at Lighthouse. And so we do have a higher percentage of minority uh, clients, but not a majority. It's still majority Caucasian. And, and, and the, the really cool thing for me is like to have a client say to me, I've been to five different therapists and none of them have ever talked to me the way that you do, which I find interesting. I remember the first time I heard that, like I was very flattered and I felt really awesome, but I also thought, what the fuck? Like, what are people doing then? If they're not like, cause I, I'm doing what I was taught to do, you know? So what am I doing that other people aren't doing? And I remember one of my clients says, well, my therapist doesn't talk to me. Like they talk at me. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. And I said, well, what does that look like? Well, they said, first of all, they said, like, I appreciate the, like some, they said that I appreciate the fact that you swear because I don't feel like you're so uptight that I can't not share things mm -hmm. with you, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Now, mind you, every person isn't going to respond well to profanity. Mm -hmm. And obviously, I must use my my intuition and clinical skills that I've le learned and developed over the years. Um, otherwise, I wouldn't have mm -hmm. a good practice. And so as a clinical therapist, you obviously have to be able to read your client and read them very quickly. But the reality is once you've established a, a good, strong relationship with your client, I'm, that's like half the battle right there. And so for me, the thing that I focus on right away is establishing a connection. And I do that by finding out what it is they need from me in that moment. And almost without exception, my clients have said, if you hadn't kicked me in my ass, I wouldn't be where I am right now. So that's what I do. I'm just going to keep kicking folks in the ass. And they appreciate you for it. Yeah. I love it. Well, some people do anyway. <laughs> when did you start to realize that you weren't going to adapt to what others wanted to make you successful and happy? Um, 1973. All right. <laughs> <laughs> when you came out the womb. No. <laughs> you know, honestly, like I've never, I like, I literally, there's, I've never ever been the person that they wanted. I've never been like, I've, I've never, you know, I have tried to tone it down. I have made very strong, very concerted efforts in that respect. But even toned down, my, when I realized that even my toned down Joel wasn't good enough, that's when I said, fuck it. And that happened probably three years ago. Yeah. And so I've been on a three-year journey getting here because three years ago, I was making really killer money and then I lost this teaching job and ended up taking another teaching job plus two other full-time jobs, one of which was my practice. And I was working three jobs at the time. And, but I needed to do that because that money I was making at two of the outside jobs kept the practice going. So I suffered for that year, year, uh, that year, year and a half. But then when the practice started picking up, that's when I knew or at least I suspected very strongly that I had the power within my grasp to be fully autonomous. And so about a year and a half ago is when I, when I really started actively working towards the point where I could just be self-sustaining. And now I'm there, you know? And the thing is, it's not 
Like, it's not a secret what I, what I've done. Like, I'm happy to help anyone who's in private practice do the exact same thing. The problem is being me is risky. Mm-hmm. I mean, shit, you, you can't be like me and not receive repercussions for that. So now are there other ways to do what I've done maybe and not do it with profanity? Yeah, go ahead. Amen. You know, but the one thing I know about counseling and therapy is that whomever you are as a therapist, whomever you are, whatever you look like, whatever walk of life you come from, if you have purple hair, tattoos, and body piercings and modifications, I have all that you shit. can have an amazing, <laughs> amazing, thriving private practice. And there are clients waiting for you. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the day, if you got a problem with me, fuck what you talking about. <laughs> yes. That is such a great wrap up to this interview. I'm disappointed honestly to wrap this up because i enjoy talking to you so much shameless but... promo time yes promo time. we didn't touch on your <laughs> podcast so definitely time. promo <laughs> that <Promo> and <laughs> anything else do it yeah so so let me plug i have my own podcast i recently started releasing called mental health is a drag with mona lot um, my character my character's name is mona lot like the word moan a lot because she's an old whore with new tricks. <laughs> um, and um, you can find, we have a Facebook page. It's uh, Mental Health is a Drag. And I post a lot of pictures because I'm always creating new looks for my character and um, little videos and little funny, sarcastic, shitty sayings. And <laughs> um, like when I do shows, there'll be pictures up there. And also I release the podcast on there too. So definitely check that out. Like I have my private practice. Um, we have two offices. One right now is uh, our main office is in Sycamore, Illinois. And then we have an office downtown Chicago in the South Loop. And the name of the practice is Lighthouse Professional Counseling Center. We are always looking for aggressive therapists. And I purposely use the word aggressive because you can't be mousy and work for me. Mm-hmm. Um Always looking for aggressive therapists who are interested in getting involved in private practice. And even if it's temporary, honey, I'm happy to bring you on, teach you the ropes and send you on your way. But let me just be clear about this. If you have ever been told that we didn't go into counseling to make money, we do it for the clients. That's awesome. But you've been lied to. (laughs) You've been lied to because you can make buku bucks in counseling. You can easily make six figures easily by yourself in counseling. And if you have a group private practice, you're just making that much more. So um, if they're, you know, um, myself and a friend of mine, Dr. Christy McGinnis started our own uh, private practice consulting firm called Crystal Consulting. And so if there's anyone out there who is looking to start a private practice or is even considering the idea of a private practice, what our consulting firm does is we help you from A to Z, from just thinking about the idea to branding, to you know, what your website needs to look like, how, you know, do you, helping you choose between a solo practice, a group practice, getting credentialed and contracted, dealing with the insurance companies, CAQH, all of that stuff. We will help you do that. Obviously we're a business, so there's, there's, this is not a free service, but 
one of the things is when you work with us, you work with us for life. So you always have access to us to help you kind of build and grow your practice. And there are lots of things, mistakes, I think, that people make going into private practice and they waste a lot of money. And I am one of those people because I didn't know what I was doing and I basically had to fly by the seat of my pants. And so you have the experience and the wisdom of myself as well as Dr. McGinnis, who has her own thriving private practice in Aurora, all of our years of experience and expertise to help kind of guide folks. So, yeah, absolutely. Check us out. Check out uh, Mental Health is a Drag. And I would love to come back and just chit chat with you guys and definitely I'd love to have you all on my podcast as well so we could talk about some some down and dirty shit because uh Mona's a different slice of pie honey yeah <laughs> let's do it I would love to do that we're on board and next time you're in Chicago definitely hit us up we'd love to touch base in person see you in person maybe we Absolutely. take a road trip to come be on your podcast we could I'm just thinking about there. getting him in Boys Town and like dancing I, know, right? I think that'd be a that that'd be a bomb time to do we can have Sunday brunch and oh, go yes. to Boys Town and dance our asses off <laughs> we'll have to plan that definitely and I'm I'm downtown on Thursdays because I see clients in my office on Thursdays so oh, um, there's always opportunities could be on Thursdays as well but the Sunday brunch and party afterwards sound phenomenal thank you <laughs> thank you so much for spending time with us today Today. It was it great was awesome. to talk Absolutely. to you. No, this was really fun. I enjoyed talking with you guys. Yes. Well, enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah. We'll be in touch. We'll you, you as well. And we'll talk soon. Guys. Great. Bye. 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 <laughs> Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Beyond Queer Stories. Also check out the creator of our podcast music, B. Studwell. She's an incredible queer artist from D.C. And you can check out her music at bstudwell.com. If you're listening to us on iTunes, don't forget to rate us so others will be able to find our podcast. Talk, Talk to you all next week. week. Bye. Bye. Bye.